everybody, and welcome back to Traffic Jam. It's Isabel and Georgia here. Hey, everyone. We are really happy to keep posting these episodes covering a variety of topics, but we do ask that you share these with your friends and family, like and subscribe, and follow along with our social media pages linked in the episode description. Yes, please, please, please share our episodes on social media with your friends and family and keep these conversations going. We truly are passionate about the anti-human trafficking cause, and one of the greatest things we can do for this cause is talk about it and let everyone know about this issue. And if you are looking for more ways to get involved, let us know. We personally run our Instagram page at Traffic Jam Podcast, and we're always looking to get more people involved in this fight against human trafficking. With that being said, we ask you to listen really close to the next 20 seconds. MISCO has what is called a Crusaders program, and we are literally giving away free security cameras to organizations that operate in the anti-trafficking space. We will have the link to apply in our episode description, but if you or anyone you know works in this space and is looking for brand new security cameras, send them this link no gimmicks you just have to prove you are doing anti-trafficking work seriously you guys if you are in this space you can never have enough equipment all we want to do at misco is support those who are rescuing victims and survivors with no cost to them so please pass this message along today's topic of conversation may be considered controversial so we're going to preface this episode really quick by saying we are simply talking about every angle that we can and that we did our best to research this topic with little to no bias so please don't take anything we say as choosing a side when we discussed bringing this topic onto the podcast we were very cautious um, and understand that many people can be rash and automatically pick sides but we are looking for the most compassionate angle uh, for everybody involved. With that being said, today we are going to talk about the Me Too movement. All right, let's get into it. Many people might not know the true origin story of the Me Too movement. Uh, This movement was started in 2006 by a woman in Alabama named... Tarana Burke. Tarana was a survivor of sexual abuse herself, but her story is not the one that sparked the movement. Tarana was a youth worker and heard many stories from young girls of harassment and abuse, and it was the story of a girl named Heaven that made Tarana realize there needed to be a movement for survivors of sexual violence. I'm going to read from a letter that's posted on the Me Too movement website. Ready? During an all-girl bonding session at our youth camp, several of the girls in the room shared intimate stories about their lives. Some were the ordinary tales of teenage joys and anxieties, but others were quite painful. Just as I had done so many times before, I sat and listened to the stories and comforted the girls as needed. When it was over, the adults advised the young women to reach out to us if they ever needed to talk or if they needed anything else. Then we went our separate ways. The next day, heaven who had been in the previous night session, asked to speak with me in private. I knew Heaven as a sweet-faced little girl who clung to me throughout the camp. However, her hyperactive and often anger-filled behavior betrayed both her name and the light, high-pitched voice with which she spoke. I was always having to pull her out of some type of situation. 
As she attempted to talk to me that day, the look in her eyes told me this conversation would be anything but ordinary. She had a deep sadness and a yearning for confession that I read immediately, and I wanted no part of it. Finally, later in the day, she caught up with me and almost begged me to listen. I reluctantly conceded, and for the next several minutes, this child, Heaven, in a halting voice, told me about her quote-unquote stepdaddy, rather, her mother's boyfriend, who was doing all sorts of monstrous things to her developing body. I was horrified by her words, and the emotions welling inside of me ran the gamut. I listened until I literally could not take it anymore, which turned out to be less than five minutes. Then right in the middle of heaven sharing her pain with me, I cut off this little girl's story and directed her toward another female counselor who I believed could quote-unquote help her better. I will never forget the look on heaven's face. I will never forget because it haunts me, still. I think about her all the time. The shock of being rejected, the pain of opening a wound only to have it abruptly forced shut again. It was all in that precious little face. But I wasn't ready to help. As much as I love children, as much as I cared about that child, I did not yet possess her courage. As much as I loved her, I could not muster the energy to tell her that I understood, that I connected, that I could feel her pain. I couldn't help her release her shame or impress upon her that none of it was her fault. But most of all, I could not find the strength to say out loud the words that were ringing in my head over and over again. I just watched her walk away from me, visibly struggling to recapture those secrets and tuck them back into their hiding place. I watched her put her mask back on her face and return to the world. And as I stood there, I couldn't even bring myself to whisper the words circling in my mind and soul. Me too. I think that is probably one of the most like powerful, personal, like really just like honest things that I have ever like listened to. And I think, I mean, this really could be a whole topic in and of itself, but it is a balance of wanting to help somebody else who is going through abuse but then having come from that background of abuse as well, that would then, you know, force her to have to kind of bring all that up again. And everybody is ready at a different time, if ever. And, you know, trying to decide who and what to share is a very difficult and daunting decision. That's all I got. Very good points, Isabel. I'm not going to just repeat everything you said, so we'll keep going. <laughs> So the whole foundation of this movement is that there are so many people out there who have experienced sexual abuse, violence, harassment, and saying me too is kind of supposed to act as a comfort mechanism to give solidarity and understanding to people as they share their stories. So the me too movement was started in 2006 by Tanara and their goal was heavily victim centered. They wanted to bring resources, support, and pathways to healing survivors and build a community of advocates destined to interrupt sexual violence wherever it happens. But the interesting thing is uh, the Me Too movement really sparked in 2017, uh, which is where most people would recognize the Alyssa Milano tweet from October 15, 2017 that made hashtag Me Too go viral. The post read, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, 
write me too as a reply to this tweet. Within 24 hours, Facebook reported over 12 million reactions to the Me Too movement. And in the following year after this tweet, hashtag Me Too was tweeted an average 55,319 times a day. That is insane at how fast that took. And I mean, when you think about how there has been a huge stigma against people who have experienced uh, sexual assault or harassment and the, the fear that keeps people from speaking out all of a sudden just almost seemed to completely dissipate. And you have all of these people, all of these women replying, me too, and speaking out against what happened to them. I wonder what um, the original founder of the Me Too movement uh, like thought about all of this. I read that Tarana was initially nervous about the possibility that Hollywood would coin the term, even though she had been using it for over 10 years at that point. But at the same time, she was completely relieved by the thought of so many survivors healing in such a large magnitude. Alyssa Milano actually learned of Tarana's work and fully credited her with the origin of the movement. Oh, well, that see, that is heartfelt, you know, to give credit where credit is due, especially with such a viral phenomena. And, you know, to really recognize a woman who has dedicated so much of her life to this work. Yes, we're tipping our imaginary hats to you for this one, Alyssa Milano. Before we go on to the impact of the Me Too movement, I want to bring up this really interesting hashtag that was adopted in France around the same time. Hashtag balance ton torque. I'm probably saying this totally wrong, but it translates to expose your pig. And the hashtag encourages survivors to come forward and name their abusers. What a way with words. Um, this is a really interesting phrase, but I really can't say I don't like it. I think it's a very creative way to get your point across. Yeah, it is. One thing worth pointing out about this French hashtag is that they took the total opposite approach of the Me Too movement. Expose Your Pig focuses on the abusers, while Me Too focuses on survivors. Good point. It's really important to recognize that difference between the American movement and the French movement. Although we do see the impacts of the Me Too movement resulting in exposure of hundreds of high-profile men. The New York Times reported that after just one year of the Me Too movement, 201 men lost their high-profile jobs following sexual harassment allegations, and almost half of these positions were filled by women. Now, I would love to say that's great to hear as a woman, But the cynic in me is saying that they only put women in those positions as a publicity stunt to try and avoid future allegations of high-ranking positions and to look like they are tipping the scales in favor of women. But that's just me. I'm sure every woman promoted earned their new rank and they had probably been put on the back burner by their ex-colleagues. You know, and there probably was a mix, you know, of different motivations involved with these promotions you know, obviously earned um, and well-deserved, 
there is a good chance that it was to appease the public um, and to help save face. I don't really know how to segue from that point, so let's just start naming names. We can't talk about this movement without talking about some of the biggest names that were finally arrested, convicted, and serving time for their crimes. So of the 201 men uh, who lost their jobs, we saw all kinds of careers impacted by Me Too. Media, entertainment, politics, culinary, and sports. And because of some of these names being so big, we also got a handful of good documentaries and docuseries covering the details of these cases. So we're going to go ahead and list uh, some of those as we go. First up, we have Harvey Weinstein, and he was the one of the biggest names ousted after the Me Too movement went blazing across the world. It was reported that he spent decades preying on women and using confidential settlements to silence his victims. He is serving sentences in prison for 23 years and 16 years. There is currently a documentary on Hulu called Untouchable and a docuseries on Netflix called Time, the Khalif Browder story. He is also one of the men who was uh, allegedly a visitor of Epstein's Island. And this is a reminder to go back to episode 11 and take a listen to us talking about what we know about Epstein's Island. Obviously, the arrest of Epstein and the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell falls after the Me Too movement. Uh, Another big name that faced the consequences of his actions was Bill Cosby. In 2015, there were 35 women who spoke out about their their abuse by Cosby, but his uh, 2017 trial resulted in a hung jury. However, in 2018, he had a retrial, which was uh, considered the first high-profile courtroom battle of the Me Too movement. He spent some time in prison, but uh, is really out, and I did see that nine women in Nevada are suing him for sexual assault after the state lifted um, its statute of limitations for civil cases as of June 2023. Thanks for adding that current update about where he's at. And another name that we all might remember is R. Kelly. He was the guy who sang Ignition. I don't really remember much else about him other than the fact that he was acquitted on charges related to child pornography, aka child abuse materials. But in 2019, he was arrested and charged with crimes related to sexual abuse of women and teenage girls. Then he was convicted in two federal trials on charges related to sex trafficking and child sexual abuse materials, and he is serving 31 years in prison. There is a Lifetime docuseries that was released in 2019 called Surviving R. Kelly. So this is probably maybe not a surprise to everybody because all of my examples come from documentaries, but... I actually watched this docuseries um, a few years ago. It's really good. I highly recommend it. I think I watched it on Netflix, if I remember right, but I don't know if it's still there. Um, And what I want to say about this is the R. Kelly situation actually brought out a really interesting angle. In the documentary, uh, several women uh, who were a part of the foundation of the Me Too movement were talking about the way that uh, the survivors of R. Kelly really felt forgotten about uh, during the Me Too movement. So 
some background before I kind of get to the main point, um, in case anybody is unfamiliar. Uh, R. Kelly was um, abusing young girls. Uh, I think they were usually, they usually what would happen was they would be on tour with him. And I can't remember how young some of these were, these girls were, but they would become his girlfriend um, and they would date. And then all of a sudden um, the girl's family wouldn't see her again. They couldn't find her. She'd be locked in his house. Um, and he was abusing these girls and he had a house where they all like lived in together, um, including into their adult years. Um, and an important component about here to, uh, to bring up is race and the way that race was involved in the Me Too movement. Because these uh, teenagers uh, are black girls. And when talking about the Me Too movement and the Me Too movement really picking up, documentary <laughs> talks about how these girls really felt almost forgotten uh, during the Me Too movement. Because, and especially when everything was coming out with like Larry Nasser, people seemed ready to get on board uh, in getting... Uh, justice uh for the girls abused by larry nasser um and these were girls in gymnastics um and they were white girls and kind of what the documentary talked about was how it was must have been easier for the public to see white girls as being able you know to be victims whereas it would have been harder for them to actually see uh these black girls as being victims of sexual abuse um, and needing that kind of justice and support. And so it was really interesting because uh, R. Kelly, he didn't actually end up going to jail until like 2022. And I think now he's serving like a 30-year sentence. But that's a long time after all of the abuse. That took a really long time for him to even serve, which is crazy. Isabel, do you want to move into explaining a little bit more about Larry Nassar? Or is it Nasser? Nasser, yeah. Yeah, so the last name that we're going to name drop here is Larry Nasser. Um, and he was the team doctor for Team USA Gymnastics. Uh, Nasser had abused female athletes for years under the guise of medical treatment. Uh, law enforcement, USA Gymnastics officials, and Michigan State University officials had ignored complaints uh, from athletes in 2015. Nasser assaulted more than 300 women and girls um, in his time as a team doctor. And in 2018, over 150 of those women and girls testified in his trial that sent him to prison for the rest of his life. Uh, his sentence added up to like a hundred to hundreds of years. And there is a documentary on Netflix called Athlete A for those of you um, who want to watch. Uh, a recent update from Nasser's life is that he was reportedly stabbed six times in his prison cell in July of 2023 because he had made a comment while watching uh, Wimbledon tennis matches and had said, I wish there were girls playing. Another inmate did not take this well and went to his cell and stabbed him, uh, having to be removed by other inmates. Well, I guess if you know what crimes he committed against hundreds of girls and maybe you have children of yourself you can't be surprised that someone took that statement to heart and what's important to recognize in all of these cases is the positions of authority power wealth etc 
that these men and abusers had over the girls and women that they abused. When they did have the courage to speak up, the girls were initially shut down or ignored. Me Too lights up the internet and the world, and all of a sudden investigations commence and people start listening to survivors of abuse. It's honestly sad that it took such a large movement for us to start believing women and girls, but this movement was so monumental for sexual violence and harassment survivors. Every institution really has been impacted by sexual violence. And so it's so important that these cases are really starting to come forward, like Georgia said, um, and that really we're like listening to survivors. That's, I think, what the key takeaway here, like from the Me Too movement was really about, was giving people that platform to speak um, about their experience and to be heard. And not only did we see men, you know, losing jobs, going to trial, you know, and facing prison time, we saw a few uh, a few laws passed post Me Too that uh, we want to discuss. In 2017, there was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. This act denies tax deductions for settlements subject to non-disclosure agreements in connection with sexual harassment or sexual abuse. Now, if that sounded like gibberish, I'm just going to explain, I'm going to try to explain what I just said. Basically, if there is a normal settlement paid out for business purposes, it can be deducted when a taxpayer files their taxes. So what this act does, it says if the settlements are related to sexual harassment or sexual abuse, it cannot be deducted from the taxpayer. So this act discourages non-disparagement agreements in connection with workplace sexual harassment. That's really interesting because I feel like that would be such an easy way for people, you know, if they can, you know, give somebody enough money to kind of coax them into keeping quiet. I mean, that would be so much easier for them. But this really kind of helps hopefully eliminate those situations um, and kind of really coaxing people into like taking money in exchange for not being able to speak on such an event. Um, Then, you know, we saw California, uh, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, and Virginia ban the use of non-disclosure agreements to cover up sexual harassment, which led to the Federal Speak Out Act of 2022, which banned NDAs to cover up sexual harassment on the federal level. This kind of shows how movements and real change in policy can start in just one or two uh, states and eventually lead to federal law. Um, so that's really cool to see. And it actually kind of brings me back to something, Georgia, you mentioned at um, the beginning of our last episode and how somebody you knew kind of was like bringing up how, you know, why are you even bothering in the fight against human trafficking? Like you're never going to end it. Maybe, maybe we don't, but like we have seen huge, even just in 2022, huge laws being passed to help allow survivors to speak uh, freely about their experiences. It's all one step at a time. You can't just, what is, I can't think of, I thought I had a saying in my head, but it's definitely wrong. What, if you want to eat an elephant, you do it one bite at a time, but I don't think it's an elephant. I, mean, I, never, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> There's some saying, basically, if it's like a big you know, if you want to climb a mountain, you got to go one step at a time. You can't just shoot to the top. Is that better? 
How about on the international level? Because in 2019, the International Labor Organization established new global standards that are aimed at ending harassment and violence in the workplace. The Convention on Violence and Harassment is the first international treaty that recognizes the right to a world of work that is free from violence and harassment. Governments that ratify this convention are required to put laws in place that prevent and address violence and harassment in the workplace. I wonder if this is like where we get all those fun, you know, sexual harassment training videos that we have to watch at work. I don't know if you saw the one. They're always so... I almost have an issue with how silly some of these are. But the one where like you ha- like teaches you about consent with by like you know, sharing a bicycle or wanting to go on a bike ride. I don't know if you ever saw that one. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay, never mind. (laughs) Well, do you know, like, so who is, well, who has ratified um, this? It was quite the list of countries that ratified it, but the U.S. was not one of them. Oh, so maybe not. This is not what we have, you know. To owe the pleasure of those fun videos. True. I think we can owe that to the Me Too movement. But from what I understand, the U.S. doesn't ratify a lot of international treaties because it infringes on our sovereignty and we don't want to be infringed upon. Every time I hear the word sovereignty, I always just think back to our international affairs class at University of Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. I wrote that word a lot in papers throughout my time there. Mm-hmm. Now, can we ever talk about something considered controversial without explaining the other side of the issue? No, I think that would be very unfair of us. So obviously, when we talk about the Me Too movement, we have to talk about the reasons people say they don't support it or they say the movement failed. Before we get into that, There is this two-part survey we found in Harvard Business Review. The first part was conducted in 2018, right after the Me Too movement was in its full effect. And the survey described 19 behaviors and asked the participants if those behaviors qualified as harassment. So there's this common conception that men harass women because they don't understand what harassment looks like, or women are often labeled as overdramatic. And that's what the researchers were trying to assess. But this survey actually disproved that. Men were more likely than women to label something as harassment in this survey. And men and women overall had similar answers throughout most of this survey. 63% of women had confirmed being harassed. 33% of those being harassed more than once but only 20% of women had actually reported it in the workplace. The main reason these women did not report their harassment included fear of negative consequences and apprehension and being labeled as troublemakers. 63% of any population is pretty significant. And those fears of repercussions by 43% of those who were harassed isn't surprising in a pre-Me Too time. And in a post-Me Too world, 74% of women said they thought they'd be more willing to speak out about harassment, and 77% of men anticipated being more careful in the workplace. More careful about, like, how they act or about, you know, them trying to hide harassment? 
I believe it was being more careful about how they act and speak towards their female counterparts, but there was a 56% of women in the survey who predicted that men would continue to harass women, that these men would take more precautions to prevent getting caught. So that's a really good point. One of the most interesting points of the survey found that more than 10% of men and women would be less willing to hire attractive women. Additionally, 22% of men and 44% of women predicted that men would be more likely to exclude women from social interactions after work hours, such as getting drinks after a long day with your, their coworkers. So what we see here are the unintended consequences of the movement that could potentially hurt women in the workplace because their coworkers are avoiding the possibilities of harassing someone. While some employers are cautious to hire someone based on their looks and a fear of an HR nightmare, that wouldn't even be the woman's fault. Going along with that trend of predictions, one third of men thought they would be reluctant to be one-on-one with female co-workers, and 58% of men predicted there would be a fear of unfair accusations as a result of the Me Too movement. So in 2019, the survey was repeated to a different group after the big Me Too fire had kind of died down, but it was still burning a little bit. So a year after the initial survey, 19% of men said they were reluctant to hire attractive women. 21% were reluctant to hire women for jobs involving close interpersonal interactions with men, such as a job that requires traveling together. And 27% avoided one-on-one meetings with women. So we saw in a year's time the impact that Me Too had in the workplace out of employers and employees not wanting to even have the possibility of a Me Too scenario happening in the workplace. I guess I can understand to a certain point the worry of not wanting to be in that situation but they are taking the opposite approach to ending and avoiding harassment in the workplace. They're blaming the victims by thinking they're potential victims. And these women haven't done anything wrong. All they did was show up for a job interview. Well, and I think too, it's like finding the balance of just like understanding what's inappropriate or appropriate behavior. And also, you know, doing due diligence in investigation if an accusation is made. Yes, it's really important for people to understand what constitutes harassment, how to speak to your coworkers or employees, and the steps on what's going to happen if an accusation is made. This kind of sounds like our MISCO U program. If anybody's interested in starting a student organization to talk about human trafficking on college campuses. Message us on our Instagram page. But really, I mean, I can see where the fear comes from because all of a sudden you're seeing all of these men losing their jobs because of accusations. And so, you know, it's a vulnerable position to be in. Um, But at the same time, you know, women have been, you know, afraid to speak out and now are finally, you know, feel, you know, they have the confidence and the courage and the support to do it. Um, Now, earlier we mentioned that 58% of men in the first survey predicted fears of being falsely accused of sexual harassment. 
And this is definitely one of the reasons that not everybody supports the Me Too movement. This is where the controversy comes in. False accusations do happen, and they are in small amounts, but we cannot neglect people who have actually done nothing wrong, but they suffer consequences of false accusations. So research doesn't quite agree on the degree of uh, how many uh, allegations of sexual assault are false, but the prediction is somewhere between 2% and 10% um, of allegations are false, which seems like a pretty big gap uh, to have, you know, a number in that kind of range, but that's just kind of what we found um, in researching. And yes, regardless, you know, 2% is small and 10% is small. But as Georgia said, that's not fair to neglect the people who do no wrong but face punishment that they don't deserve. And to put it into perspective, there are thousands of sexual harassment charges every year. This is not a number of actual harassments. It's just what's actually charged. And as we know, many go unreported and unfiled due to various reasons and social stigmas. But when the numbers of charges are in the thousands, that means there could be hundreds of men who lose their jobs, their families, their lifestyles, etc. because of a false accusation of sexual harassment. And we have a few examples of false accusation cases to uh, help bring this to light. The first being a man named Christian Southers. Christian was accused of raping three girls in 2020. Two of the girls lived in the same house as Christian and one was a neighbor. He was charged with rape, gross sexual imposition, unlawful sexual conduct with a minor, and kidnapping. During the trial, text messages revealed that the one girl had lied to her mother, boyfriend, interviewer at the children's hospital, and made contradictory statements to the jury. One of the other girl's statements to her mother, law enforcement, and the children's hospital had changed between the allegations and the trial, and Southers was allowed to walk free. He had spent 100 days in prison, but he faced a maximum of 72 years in prison and would have been required to register as a sex offender. Another case is that of Jordan Trengrove. He was falsely accused of rape and assault by Eleanor Williams, who claimed that they had met at a nightclub when he drugged raped and attacked her in her home. Trengove spent 10 weeks in prison when he was cleared of the charges. Williams had falsely accused multiple men over a period of time, creating fake social media accounts and went so far as to injure herself to quote unquote show the abuse that she had endured. Williams was imprisoned for eight and a half years on eight counts of perverting the course of justice. And even though there are alibis and surveillance evidence to prove that Williams was lying about all of her abuses, there are so many people that still believe that she was innocent and that she was abused by all of these men. Jordan Trengove attempted suicide in front of his mother because the backlash from the public of a false accusation weighed so heavily on him. If he was found guilty of this accusation, he could have spent 22 years in prison. A pretty known well-false accusation case is that of the Duke University lacrosse team. Um, On March 13, 2006, Crystal Mangum falsely accused three Duke lacrosse players 
of raping her at a party. The head coach, Mike Pressler, was forced to resign, and the remainder of the 2006 lacrosse season was canceled. A year later, April 11, 2017, the charges against the three players, Reed Seligman, Colin Finnerty, and David Evans, were dropped. There were several inconsistencies in Mangum's telling of the evening, as well as solid alibi evidence for the boys. The boys were victims of a tragic rush to accuse, as so many people had believed Magnum's lies and didn't care about the several lives her lies changed for the worst. I remember hearing about this case when I was a kid because we were still kind of young when this was going on, but I never remembered actually hearing about the charges being dropped. I don't know if you remember that time of your life. No, I don't I don't think that early on I I was too involved in lacrosse. <laughs> I wasn't involved in lacrosse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all I have to say. That's so funny. One more recent false allegation was against former MLB pitcher Trevor Bauer. In the spring of 2021, he was accused of sexually assaulting a woman and was placed on administrative leave that July, which then turned into a 324-game suspension starting in April of 2022. A 324-game suspension is a long time. This was twice longer than previous suspensions given by the MLB in their domestic violence policies. Lindsay Hill, the accuser in this case, had slept with Bauer consensually, and they had consensual rough sex. There are text messages and a phone call to prove this. You could find it online. She had asked him to hit her multiple times during intercourse, and the following day she filed charges of sexual battery against him. Like I said, the text messages were leaked in a phone call between them as well. And in these texts from her phone, she was messaging one of her friends before she had even met Bauer and discussing his net worth and how she needed to, quote unquote, secure the bag. There were also selfies she had taken the morning after laying in bed next to him with this big smile on her face and she had no bruising. But then she had taken other selfies after she left his apartment and her face was bruised like she had just been beaten up. And one of the nurses at the hospital said the bruising around her was so horrendous. Not an exact quote. So to explain the difference in the pictures while she was laying in bed next to him and at the hospital, she claimed that the bruises needed the time to develop. Now, this case is still pretty fresh as the two dropped their suits recently against each other. Um, And Bauer has been playing baseball in Japan and old teammates of his are vouching for him to return to the MLB. But this case shows how quickly they didn't even look into this case. They just dropped him immediately because they didn't want somebody accused of domestic violence in the organization. I feel like when we're talking about uh, like the full impact of Me Too, both the way it's helped survivors and even, you know, some of these controversies regarding the movement, I feel like it's really important to make sure that there is a balance of when an accusation is brought forth for the delicacy of, you know, that survivor to listen and to care 
and to make sure that that person is taken care of in the best way um, and to help meet any immediate needs. But at the same time, take that investigation process very seriously. And I feel like maybe where we've gone a little bit astray is that taking the investigation process seriously has um, somehow become a way of saying that you don't believe the woman. But in what other crime do you not investigate? So basically we need some type of cautious, thorough system in place where we take the report, we provide necessary aftercare, and then we do a thorough investigation before anybody loses a job or loses their lifestyle. Because we do want to believe women and survivors because it's important to listen to them because most of the time they are telling the truth. But we do need to eliminate this small percentage of men who are falsely accused. To sort of wrap all of this up, the Me Too movement was founded on the idea, the idea that we need to start listening to women when they say they were abused. The idea that we need to make sure there are known and respected boundaries in the workplace and in the world. And the idea that sexual harassment and sexual assault is unfortunately very common and that we need to talk about it and investigate it when people say they've been hurt. I'm glad that, you know, from the Me Too movement, it has, you know, created a lot of you know, that, you know, one person coming forward has really helped encourage, you know, all these other women to be able to come forward because you feel stronger in numbers. And so that's, that's I think, really how this, you know, movement really just became so powerful. Um, and it's interesting because we definitely have, you know, seen it die down. I don't know if we're going to see it, you know, pick back up. Um, but it is something, you know, that we always remember and we think about and it really has integrated itself into the workplace and into policy um and like state laws too um so it's i mean it's even though we're not hearing it quite so loudly it is still manifesting itself in the world and it has a lasting impact the me too movement has really helped us um you know take a moment to actually listen to uh women's stories and their experiences instead of brushing them away um for being, you know, harassed and assaulted. Um, you know, it's where we hold people accountable for doing uh, wrong. And, you know, a, a world where power and money has less power in the courtroom when the proper evidence is presented to prove a case. Unfortunately, on the flip side, Me Too has impacted change where women may be less likely to be hired for jobs or promoted or left out of social gatherings if they are deemed attractive. And it has impacted a change where the immediate response of sexual harassment allegations can ruin parts of an accused's lives before an investigation has even been completed. Going back to Isabel's point about that balance that we need. December is Universal Human Rights Month. December 10th, we will celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. For those of you who don't know what that is, this was the first document to define and protect the fundamental human rights that we all hold. Article 4 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states that no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery and the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. Obviously, at Traffic Jam and MISCO, we are doing our best to do work that protects 
this human right that we all hold. Human trafficking is a form of slavery no matter how you cut the cake. This December, we are challenging you all listening to have a conversation with your friends, family, coworkers, anybody about human trafficking and tell them that slavery exists. It exists here in the U.S. and there are millions enslaved around the world. And when you do have this conversation, let us know how it goes. Message us on Instagram or LinkedIn and tell us what kind of conversation you had. Raise awareness to protect people's basic human rights and specifically the right not to be enslaved. We hope to hear from you. We're excited to read your stories. Um, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.